You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. On June 8th, 2021, after preaching... Street preacher Dave McConnell was assaulted by a mob in England. The police arrived, but ultimately they arrested McConnell for using harassing language because he had referred to a biological male dressed as a woman as a gentleman. McConnell was convicted, fined, sentenced to community service, and reported to the British government for terrorism. The prosecutors in his case explained, quote, people have the right to express their views, but when words cross the line between a legitimate expression of religious views and become distressing and threatening, we will prosecute the offenders. What they're saying is that religious views become criminal as soon as they offend someone else. It's a very common idea in the West today. If you follow the news, you'll know that In Europe, there have been many hate speech cases brought against people who articulated the historic Christian perspective on gender and sexuality the last few years. And we we should expect the same thing to happen here in time. Because there is no single area where historic Christianity conflicts with the, the world more today than on these questions of gender and sexuality. And this morning, we're going to see what God has to say about these topics as we continue our study in the book of Genesis. Now, maybe today you say, hey, I don't want to hear a sermon about gender and sexuality. I'm, I'm tired of hearing about this on the news. I understand. Maybe you say, I've been hurt talking about these things before or hearing what the Bible has to say has hurt people that I care about. I don't want to hear a sermon about that today. I understand. But friends, we must not avoid painful or sensitive subjects from the pulpit. My obligation is to set before you what the Apostle Paul calls the whole counsel of God in Acts 20. My duty is to declare to you that God has authoritatively spoken, whether we want to hear it or not. Titus 2.15 says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And honestly, friends, it's good for us to hear these things. Because Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So wherever you are in life this morning, I want to lovingly but truthfully confront you with God's word about gender and sexuality as we look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And today we're going to see three points. First, God created humanity to exist in community. Second, God created humanity as men and women. And third, God created marriage. So we're the first point, which is that God created humanity to exist in community. Last week we saw that God made the first man and gave him a job. Adam was to guard the Garden of Eden, and he was to venture forth from the Garden and to fill the outside world and to subdue it. But while God gave Adam this responsibility, he also gave him a restriction. Adam could eat from all the beautiful trees of the Garden, but there was one tree he could not eat from, 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because eating from this tree constituted an attempt to usurp God's place. God is the one alone who decrees what is right and wrong. And we pick up immediately after God gives this restriction. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now, throughout chapter 1, we've seen that God declared various parts of his creation to be good. The Hebrew word is tov, and it means that something reflects God's good design and character. But as God looks at Adam, he sees that something is not good, is not tov about Adam's situation. What's wrong? Well, with Adam himself, nothing. But with the human race, something is lacking. In chapter 1, God did not pronounce the parts of his creation to be good until they were complete. But in Genesis 2.18, humanity is incomplete because Adam is only half the equation. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image, male and female he created them. Until God created woman, humanity was lacking because Adam by himself could not execute God's design. Humanity was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam can't do that by himself. It's not good for him to be alone. Now, this verse is often used as a proof text for the idea that God intends every person to marry. Over the years, I have observed some well-meaning Christians cajoling single believers into marriage, saying, it's not good for man to be alone. But while the first people had this responsibility to physically reproduce and fill the earth, we've said many times recently that in the church age, God has given us a different assignment to go make disciples, spiritual reproduction. And as a result, the New Testament is clear. God does not mandate marriage today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 38, He who marries does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. You say, wow, what's that about? Well, he says the single person can do a lot more for Christ because his loyalties are undivided. But 1 Corinthians 7, 7 is clear. Both singleness and marriage are good gifts from God. So Genesis 2.18 is not teaching that singleness is bad and marriage is good. Rather, it's teaching that isolation is bad and community is good. See, Adam's isolation is problematic because not only can he not fulfill God's design for humanity by himself, but he also cannot accurately reflect God. Adam was to image God in creation, to reflect him, to communicate truths about him to life on earth. But in his solitude, Adam cannot image God because God does not exist in solitude. God exists in the eternal community of the Trinity. And so Adam's solitude is not good because it does not reflect God. Now, what should we take from this? Friends, God means for us to live in community today as well. In this chapter, God will create the first community, marriage. And if you're married, that is a wonderful gift from God. It is good to have that community. But not everyone marries, and some of us are widowed. But whether we're married or not, God still intends for us to have community. And in the New Testament, God creates another community, the church. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. 
God saves people and brings them into his community. The universal church, the, the, the universal fellowship, all who believe throughout all ages. And the New Testament talks about local churches, local manifestations of that universal community, which are described in Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A local church is a community founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ, marked by fellowship, or the word means partnership. We're to have a partnership in the gospel. We're to share meals together, as we'll do later today, including the Lord's Supper that remembers the death of Jesus. We're to be marked by common concern and prayer for one another. Friends, that is what the local church is to be. Not an entertainment factory. Not a country club. Not all about programming to, to keep people happy and want to get them in, in the door. No, friends, we are to be a vibrant community of believers built on our shared faith. But in the West, we have forgotten the value of community. We value individualism, which has generated some really bad fruit we're going to see in a minute. And unfortunately, many Christians have followed the culture and have de-emphasized community. And when we do that, we turn away from God's good design. Yes, God saves individuals, but when he saves us, he adds us to his community. God's intention for community is essential to humanity. But tragically today, many people seeking community come looking for it among the people of God and cannot find it. And so they seek it elsewhere in the world, which will offer community on the basis of everything other than the gospel. Community at work, community based on shared interests, Community based on common sins. And tragically, people are drawn away from the church and into the world because they find more community outside the church than in it. Friends, we must reclaim community because it is God's plan for humanity. In the church, we must be involved in each other's lives and we need to love one another. That does not mean unconditional affirmation, as the world says. It means that we act in each other's interests even if it means a cost to us means we should encourage and sometimes warn each other so that we persevere in godliness. Friend, do not withdraw into yourself and keep everyone else at arm's length. Find someone to get to, be to know better here. Invest in them. And in time, you'll find other people investing in you. And you'll be where God wants you to be. Not alone, but in community. We come now to our second point, which is that God created humanity as men and women. Adam's solitude is not good, but God says he's going to fix it. Look at verse 18. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. God's going to make a helper who corresponds to Adam, who complements him, who will complete humanity. So here's what God does, verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So God brings the animals before Adam so that Adam might name each of them. And here we see how things should have gone. God and man communing face to face, working together to rule the earth. God is the overlord and man is his deputy. Because Adam here is performing the duty God gave him. He is exercising authority over life on earth. We said in chapter 1, giving a name to something in the Bible is exercising authority over it. 
Many examples of this we looked at back then. We saw that God renamed Abram, Abraham, or Sarai, Sarah, or Jacob, Israel, or Jesus renamed Simon, Peter. Only a Lord, an authority figure, can issue a name. And in Genesis 1, God named day and night, sky, dry land, sea, and humanity. And in this, God showed his authority over creation. But God, God did not name any animals in chapter 1, because God has delegated authority over the animals to man. And here Adam begins discharging that. And as he does so, he begins to perceive what God knows. He's alone. Think about it. Adam had only recently been created. He probably hasn't been outside the garden yet. He hasn't seen any animals before. And now that he sees them, he would have seen how totally different he is from each of them. Yes, they live like he does, but they don't image God. They don't talk. They don't reason. As Adam looked at each animal, he would have an increasing sense of his own solitude. There is no helper correspondent to him in the animal kingdom because he is not an animal. He is human. And now after his task is done, after Adam perceives his problem, now God acts. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. Now, God gives some divine anesthetic to Adam here before performing this ribectomy. Um, this phrase, a deep sleep, appears a few times in the Old Testament, often describing an occasion in which divine revelation takes place. And when Adam awoke, God indeed had a revelation for him, the perfect mate, woman. Now, for simplicity's sake, we're going to call her Eve, even though she doesn't get that name for some time yet. But Eve has been built from Adam's side. She is taken from him and, like him, has been built by God. And at the end of verse 22, at last we find the first appearance of the Hebrew words meaning man and woman. Up until this point, the word that has described Adam throughout all of this has been the generic Hebrew term meaning human. In Genesis 1.26, we saw the terms meaning male and female. But now we get specific words meaning man and woman. And what we see is that God, who showed Adam he had a need, now meets that need. God gives Adam his vital helper. Now what does it mean that Eve was Adam's helper? This word is a positive term, not a negative term. It's often used to describe God in the Bible, who meets our greatest needs that we cannot meet. So this is not a degrading term. This is not saying the woman is the help, like a servant. Neither is this saying woman is more powerful than man, achieving what he could not. No, the idea is that humanity now exists as a corresponding pair, two equal image bearers of God. Adam, who has received duties from God he cannot perform alone, and Eve, who will help him accomplish them. And so God's solution to Adam's solitude is not to provide him with an animal, a beast to bear his burdens, not to provide him an angel who could supernaturally solve his problems, not to provide him another man who would double his capabilities. God provides a woman, equal in essence, quality, and worth to Adam, but different in form and function. 
Now, this is a controversial passage. It always has been. Because God's word clashes with false ideas from the unbelieving world. For millennia, the controversial idea here was the equality of the sexes. Because the world believed falsely that men were innately superior to women. And tragically, while some of God's people believed the Bible down through the ages, many bought into the lies of the world. Now, in the last century, this idea of the equality of men and women became less controversial. And so a new idea arose, a new false idea, that equality between the sexes means there should not be gender roles in any spheres of life. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible indicates there are areas of life where gender roles exist, where men must lead. And what are these areas? Well, the Bible indicates there are two such areas, in the family and in the church. We'll begin to see the idea of gender roles here in verse 23, which we'll look at in a minute, as Adam names Eve. Again, naming indicates authority. But Adam names Eve only after speaking something that is basically a marriage vow. Adam's authority over Eve is within the marital context. This is important. The Bible does not say that every woman should submit to every man. I've known people that believe that. That is unbiblical. Ephesians 5.22 instead says that wives are to submit to their own husbands. And the verb translated submit there is hupotasso. It speaks of the voluntary subordination of an equal. The same verb is used to describe Christ's voluntary subordination to the Father. The Father and the Son are both equally God. They share all the same nature and attributes. But the Son has chosen to submit himself voluntarily to the Father to form a functional hierarchy. It's the same in marriage. The wife is not innately less than the husband. Man and woman are equal image bearers of God. But within the home, for the functionality of the household, God's designation is that the husband should lead. And that leadership comes at a steep price. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Male leadership is not a pretext for abuse. Abuse is the antithesis of this command. Male leadership requires the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And how much did Christ love the church? He hung on the cross, enduring the horrors of crucifixion and the scorn of his enemies and the very wrath of God to save us. And the Bible says that's the measure with which husbands should love their wives. Husbands, we must not be marked by selfishness. God calls us to limitless selflessness. And wives are to support and follow their husbands insofar as they are able to do so while still submitting to Christ. I have known women who were led into sin by their husbands who used the idea of marital submission as an excuse to justify their behavior, a sort of just-following-orders defense. Friends, that is not biblical submission. No one is entitled to unqualified submission but Jesus. If your husband wants to lead you into sin, do not listen to him. Obey the Scripture. But if your husband's leadership does not bring you into conflict with the Scriptures, wives, you should follow him. Now, that does not mean that you should shut up and acquiesce silently if he's making an obviously terrible decision. Eve was created to be Adam's vital helper. 
God has given each husband a vital helper in our wife. That husbands, we are fools if we disregard our wives' insight and ideas. At home, we should cultivate an environment of a give and take of ideas with our wives. But if after that, the husband and wife still disagree about how the family should proceed, the husband's view must prevail, provided that it is consistent with the scriptures. Because that is how God has organized the family. So God has ordained gender roles at home. And God has ordained gender roles at church. 1 Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Last year when we studied 1 Timothy, we said this verse prohibits women from holding the office of elder in a church or acting as an elder or teaching the whole church when it's gathered together. But outside the home and the church, there is no biblical warrant for specific gender roles distinguishing men from women. After all, the key text on men and women in the New Testament is Galatians 3.28. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we should understand broadly outside of these two areas with prescribed gender roles, there is liberty. But tragically, over the last century, while some of God's people believed the Bible when it said there were gender roles, many bought into the lies of the world and rejected the existence of any gender roles. But now in our day, this controversy has given way to yet another controversy with the rise of a new false idea that we'll call gender ideology. Now, gender ideology teaches that there is a difference between sex and gender. It says that sex is a biological category and gender is a social category. Sex is something you're born with and gender is something that you learn to perform. Now, people who hold this viewpoint claim this distinction between sex and gender is legitimate because they say different cultures understand the roles of men and women differently. So they argue this means there is no universal essence of masculinity, of being a man, or femininity, being a woman. So these, are, these constructs of men and women are culturally rather than biologically defined. That is the foundational idea. Now, this foundational idea has merged with three other bad developments to produce gender ideology. First is the self-idolatry of hyper-individualism. The idea that everyone should embrace their own inner desires to become our authentic selves. That each of us is an independent arbiter of our own personal truths. That we ought not conform to any external standards of right and wrong because each of us is a god unto ourselves capable of decreeing good and bad for ourselves. And friends, if that sounds a lot like taking from the tree of knowledge, that's because it is. Yet this is a very popular idea today. Second is the sexual idolatry that has come from Freudian psychology. I'm quoting now from a gender identity proponent, quote, Sexuality, the desire that emerges from being male or female, is the central explanatory principle in human subjects. Sex is the general substratum of our existence. You say, what's that mean? I'll tell you. What she's saying is, if you want to know who you really are, at the end of the day, it's not about your beliefs or your personality or your upbringing or your ethnic background. The core of you is sexuality. That is your ultimate defining characteristic. And friends, that is the dominant view within the social sciences today. Now, the third development here is 
medical technology that allows for sex reassignment. And when you put all these ideas together, you wind up with gender ideology, which ultimately concludes this. Because gender is distinct from biological sex, gender is a non-real social construct. Each of us has an inner truth that fundamentally governs who we are, which is sexual in nature. If our inner selves subjectively feel like they are not in alignment with our biology, then we are transgendered, our bodies are wrong, and should conform or should be made to conform with our inner perspective of ourselves because only we can decide for us what is true. Now, what should we say to this? Well, friends, let's look at some of these ideas that stand behind this ideology. First, hyper-individualism is ruinous folly. Truth is whatever corresponds to reality. Truth is objective and knowable. So this idea that I have a truth and you have a truth is nonsense. We each may have perspectives about truth, which may be accurate or inaccurate, but claiming that my perspective is my truth doesn't actually make it true. doesn't mean that it corresponds to what's real. And looking inside to probe our own desires is not going to point us to the truth but to a lie. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We cannot trust our own feelings to tell us the truth because we're fallen. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate from the forbidden tree. They thought that they could become godlike arbiters of good and evil, and it plunged everything into ruin and death. And friends, when we follow their example, we produce disaster in our lives. Second, this idea that sexual desire is the truest reality about us is idolatry. It is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. And what has this birthed? Friends, there are massive numbers of terribly confused and depressed men and women today. There are generations that view people not as human beings with innate worth and dignity, but as potential sexual objects, dehumanizing them. This birthed the AIDS pandemic, the abortion industry, the normalization of pornography, and all of the physical and mental and sexual dysfunction generated by all of that. It has produced chaos. Third, just because humans have developed sex reassignment procedures does not mean we should utilize them in cases of, of transgenderism. Now, there are people because of the fall who are born sort of sexually ambiguous uh, biologically. I think that sex reassignment procedures can be used in those cases to address that disability. But to remake ourselves and our own desires, friends, that repeats the error of Babel. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. But lastly, what about this foundational claim that biological sex is distinct from gender? Well, it's true. Many cultures view masculinity and femininity differently. But we don't define what's good by appealing to culture because humanity's fallen. And so cultural differences about gender may be extensions of the fall. And second, just because gender roles may differ from culture to culture does not justify the idea that the terms man and woman should be defined apart from a consideration of biological sex. Friends, biological sex is a reality that God has hardwired into our chromosomes. That is real and unchangeable. It doesn't matter what procedures you have or hormones you take, your chromosomes remain because you are who you are. 
And those chromosomes impact us in countless ways that are more tangible and real than our subjective feelings. We said last week, human life is a soul-body unity. Our bodies are real. They're not all that we are, but they are a substantial part of us. They define us in a more real way than our subjective feelings, our inward desires, or our sexual urges. Friends, ultimately we define what is good by looking to God, who is the arbiter of good and evil. And God has created a sexual dichotomy between male and female, and God has created a gender dichotomy between men and women. And we see that in Genesis 1 and 2. Because chapter 1 says humanity was created male and female. And those Hebrew terms talk about anatomical distinction. But here in chapter 2, humanity is created as men and women. And what controls their gender identity? Their biological differentiation. So biblically, gender is not a distinct category from biological sex. Gender is determined by biological sex. If you are male, you are a man or a boy. If you are female, you are a woman or a girl. And friends, there are only these two genders. In, in recent years, gender ideology proponents have argued that because we can all define our own truths, there are theoretically limitless genders. I've seen people claim there are as many as 70 genders. But God says there's only two, men and women. And we know that because while man's solitude was not good, after God made the woman, Genesis 1.31, God says that was very good. Humanity is complete when it exists in this gender binary. And that is what God says is tov. That's what reflects his character and his design. Now, what should we do with all this? Okay, first, we need to believe what the Bible says about men and women and reject the world's lies. Do you believe that men and women are equal image bearers of God? Or do you think one sex is superior? Do you believe God has ordained gender roles for the home and the church? Or do you say God shouldn't be able to set those parameters on the things he's created? Do you believe there are only two genders, men and women, that directly correspond to the biological sexual distinction between male and female? Or have you bought into gender ideology? Friends, we've got to repent from whatever lies we've believed, and we need to believe the truth. Second, as we talk about these issues, we must not inadvertently give ammunition to the world. A lot of gender confusion today comes from stereotyping. Say, well, boys like football and camping, girls like playing with dolls and tea parties. Now, these stereotypes exist because they are often accurate, but they aren't always accurate. Sometimes a boy might like the color pink. Sometimes girls might like football. And if we talk about gender as though it's primarily related to preferences and interests, we create an opportunity for deception. To be, for that boy to be told, well, you like pink because you're not really a boy. Or for that girl to hear, well, maybe you like football because you're transgender. Now, I'm not saying we should embrace androgyny and live in some bleak shade of gray. But what I am saying is we need to talk with specificity about gender and sex. We need to insist that humanity was created male and female and that biology alone determines gender, not our interests, our personal preferences, or subjective feelings. Third, we need to speak about these issues with love and truthfulness. Earlier we saw the world has no patience for, for an articulation of historic Christian perspectives about these matters. People that talk about what the Bible says are immediately branded as hateful. But friends, because this label is so quickly attached to us, I think we need to go the extra mile when we engage in these discussions to be loving. 
to demonstrate a genuine desire for the well-being of others, to treat every human being as they should be treated, as image bearers of Almighty God. We must listen and we must love. And I know this can be hard to do because we feel like people just want to label us as haters and, and shut us up. But we need to remember Christ's example. 1 Peter 2 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Fourth, friends, we need to settle in for the long haul. Do not imagine this controversy is going away anytime soon. This will be a live controversy for the rest of our lives. And that means that if we believe what the Bible says about these things, we must prepare to be marginalized, opposed, and persecuted. You might say, well, that's, that's scary. I understand that. But that was the position the early church was in. They were outsiders in a culture that hated their beliefs. And that's why Peter in 1 Peter 2 calls them sojourners and exiles. Friends, in, in this world, that's what we are. We are exiles. This world is not our home. We need to make peace with the fact we are strangers in a strange land. And we will be opposed on these matters. And we've got to be willing to pay the price for standing on God's word. But fifth, and really most importantly, we need to know there is hope for those battling gender confusion and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are all sinners. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have all believed lies about ourselves. We have all believed lies about God. We have all believed lies about how things ought to be. And we've all acted on that. Now, that might look different than those who are touched by gender ideology. But friend, make no mistake, our sins deserve death. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Theirs and ours. And believing, friend, you belong to Christ today, not because of your wisdom or intelligence or good decision-making or righteous life, Ephesians 2 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is an unearned gift from God alone, received by faith in the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As you engage with those battling gender confusion, remember the same gospel that saved you can save them. And today, if you are here and you are battling gender confusion, I want to say to you, there is real hope in Jesus. I know that the world is telling you that your subjective feelings are right, that your biology doesn't matter. They may offer you unconditional acceptance for your feelings and whatever choices you make. But friends, what they're offering you is false. You know, there's that old story about the emperor's new clothes. It doesn't matter if the whole kingdom agrees to pretend that the emperor is well-dressed. In actuality, he's naked. It doesn't matter how many people tell you transgenderism is true, it's false. What's wrong with you is not your body. What's wrong with you is that just like every other person, you're descended from Adam and Eve. They fell into sin. They caused ruin and chaos for all of us. The alienation that you feel from your body is a manifestation of that ruin. And if you want to be delivered from that, you can be. There is hope and peace. But friend, it's not by changing your identity and giving yourself a new name, as though you were sovereign over your life like God is. It's not through sex reassignment. Friends, true life and hope comes from turning to Jesus, turning away from the life you've been living and the lies you've been believing, taking Jesus as your Lord, the one who has the right to tell you how to live, who tells you the truth, and taking him as your Savior because he died the death that we all deserve to die. 
And he rose from the dead, proving himself to be God. Friend, I want you to know true peace and hope and joy and community can be found in Jesus. But this brings us to our third point, which is that God created marriage. Now in verse 22, God created the first woman, and now we see verse 22, that God brought her to the man. In verse 19, God brought the animals to Adam. Now God brings to Adam something quite different, a woman. And as God brings her to Adam, Adam perceives that she is no mere animal. She is no lesser creature. She's the companion that he lacked. And as Adam sees Eve, he speaks. Verse 23. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam bursts into poetry. And what he says here is really important for two reasons. First, here Adam accepts the woman from God as his wife, thus forming the first human community. This phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, means a lot more than meets the eye. We might read this and say, well, Adam is just recognizing that Eve came from him. And that's true, the second half of this verse shows. But this phrase, my bone and flesh, is found five other places in the Old Testament. And in each of these other places, the phrase indicates two things. First, the existence of a family-like bond. It says that we are related. And second, it indicates the existence of a vow or covenant between two parties that generates intense personal loyalty. So Adam here is not saying, wow, look what God made from my rib. He's saying to Eve, we will form a family relationship and undertake obligations to each other. This is really a wedding vow. And so here begins the first human community, a family formed by the first marriage. And we find this right at the start of the Bible. Now, unsurprisingly, we find many marriages through the Bible. Marriage is quite important biblically. But marriage is not an end in itself. We know that because Jesus tells us marriage won't last forever. Matthew 22, 30, he says, In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Resurrected people in the new creation won't be married. But what won't last forever is marriage, but what will last forever is the relationship pictured in marriage, the relationship between God and his people. We find this picture first in the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, verse 5. God speaks to Israel and says, Your maker is your husband. And then later, the Lord has called you like a wife. And then later, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. But while God was faithful to Israel, Israel was not faithful to God, which is why Israel's idolatry is often called adultery in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, we see that marriage depicts the relationship of Jesus and the church. We read from Ephesians 5 earlier, and it talks about gender roles in marriage. But that same section ends by saying that marriage refers to Christ and the church. The husband reflects Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the wife's submission reflects the church, who submits to Christ. And so we see marriage here at the beginning of the Bible. And marriage is an important theme that runs through the Bible. And we find a marriage at the end of the Bible. Revelation 19 verse 6 says, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The marriage Supper of the Lamb speaks of the time when Christ will be joined to his people forever. will live with Jesus forevermore. And so we see here in the first marriage the beginning of an institution that lasts throughout history as we know it and which points to our eternal hope. But we also see a second important thing in verse 23 as Adam gives the woman a name. I said earlier this is the beginning of gender roles within marriage. 
The husband leads and the wife follows. Those roles are what make marriage an effective picture of the relationship between God and people. So the first marriage takes place, and this first marriage is instructive for what must happen in all subsequent marriages. The divine pattern here is tov, it's good, and everything that comes afterwards must reflect this model. And that becomes clear in verse 24, as Moses offers a commentary and an application from the marriage of Adam and Eve. Look at verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God made marriage. He has the right to define it, and he does so here. And God says marriage consists of two elements and three moves. The two elements are one woman and one man. Now, after the fall, this pattern will be quickly corrupted. In Genesis 4.19, we're going to see that Lamech took two wives. That polygamy distorts God's definition of marriage, that is between one man and one woman. In our own time, we have seen societies embrace so-called homosexual marriage, where two people of the same sex take vows. That was not recognized anywhere in the history of the world until the year 2000, and yet today it has become normative throughout the Western world. Very soon, I expect we will see polygamy legalized here, as well as other more inventive forms of marriage. But biblically, marriage involves one man and one woman alone. Polygamous marriage, homosexual marriage, or anything else called marriage outside that pattern is not the biblical pattern. Therefore, it is not good. It is not tov. It is not consistent with God's design or intent. It is not morally upright, and it is not truly marriage. Because marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his people. And any marriage outside the union of one man and one woman destroys that picture. What is the theological picture painted in a marriage with two brides? It'd be like the church being devoted not to Christ, but to another group of people. Or a marriage of two husbands depicts Christ married to Christ, two leaders and no followers. Or what of polygamous marriage or anything else? Friends, these things are category mistakes. They're theologically nonsensical, and more than that, they're sin. Because they're rebelling against God. God alone is the arbiter of good and evil. God has declared marriage between one man and one woman to be good. And so anything else purporting to be marriage is rebellion against God's lordship over the institution of marriage and over creation. So marriage involves one man and one woman, and together they make three moves. First, there is a leaving. We should translate this forsaking of father and mother. If we translate this leaving, it sounds like the big issue is where they're going to live. But in ancient society, children typically lived with the family patriarch. We'll see that later in Genesis. Isaac lives with Abraham after his marriage. I think what God's concerned here is not where the spouses live, but where their primary allegiance lies. And often in the Old Testament, this verb describes Israel's failure to be loyal to its covenant with God. And that's the idea here. There should be a breach, a rupture of the former loyalties of the married couple. Previously, their chief loyalty was to their parents. That loyalty continues to exist, but it's no longer primary. Instead, that primary loyalty to parents is forsaken. And parents, I want to tell you, it's vital you understand this and do not unduly insert yourself into your children's marriages. I have seen this happen in the past. It led to terrible outcomes in one case. It literally drove a man to death. A friend of mine, married people understand your previous... Or, Parents understand you need to back off 
and, and not assert dominion over a married couple. And, and married people, you need to understand your previous obligations to your parents must take a back seat to your spouse. The second move that takes place is the formation of a new loyalty. The verb translated here, hold fast, is often used to describe Israel's loyalty to God, or God's loyalty to Israel. And so the idea is the husband and wife forsake their obligations to their parents and they develop a new loyalty primarily to one another. And this loyalty is intended for life. And the third move that takes place is a new family is formed, one flesh. Now this is created through sexual union. And the Bible is clear that sexual union is appropriate only for people who have formally entered a marriage that conforms to God's design of one man and one woman. Sexual expression outside of such a marriage is contrary to God's design and is grievous sin. That's what Hebrews 13.4 means when it says the marriage bed must be undefiled by all. First Thessalonians 4 says abstain from sexual immorality. Our society doesn't really have a category for sexual immorality anymore. The sexual ethic today is do whatever you want with anyone, provided that everybody involved consents. And so casual sex is rampant. But in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says there's no such thing as casual sex. He says that sex with a prostitute forms a one flesh union. And that tells us that spirit, sex spiritually binds people together, whether you're married or not. And if you're having sex outside marriage, what that means is you're forming spiritual bonds with people that ought not exist. You're wronging your body, Paul says. That's not casual, that's deadly serious. In fact, any sexual expression outside marriage is deadly serious. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is characterized by unrepentant, persistent sexual sin, Paul says, your life's not regenerate. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. That sexual union in marriage is a good gift from God, which must be regularly enjoyed by married couples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That's the big idea in the Song of Solomon. Regular enjoyment of sex within marriage is absolutely vital to maintaining that marriage and growing together. That's why the sexually satisfied married couple is pictured at the end of the Song of Solomon like this. Song of Solomon 8. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is strong as death. Jealousy fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. This kind of passion is a result of regular self-giving in sex that is other-focused. And so sex is a good gift God has given humanity, but he has limited its application within marriage. But a one-flesh union is about more than just sex. As Adam told Eve, you are my flesh and bone. And so every married couple becomes one unit, shares one life, and is to be as close as though we are sharing one body. So that's a biblical understanding of marriage. And we come to our last verse now, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before the fall, humanity dwelt in peace and bliss, ignorant of sin. Afterwards, they're going to hide and cower and cover themselves because they're going to know shame and guilt and it's going to make them look at themselves differently. But at this point, Adam and Eve 
were in a marriage that reflected God's design, that was without sin, and they had no shame. But friends, I want to conclude with this today. Almost all of us will feel some shame when we're confronted with the truth about God's design for marriage and sex. This is an area in which we all likely have failure. Maybe it's a failure in our roles at home. Husbands, are you leading your wives spiritually? Are you sacrificially loving them? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Maybe the failures in regard to sexual sin in the past or in the present. Pornography, premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery. Maybe today our failure is sexually in our marriage because we have neglected the good gift of sex that God has told us we should participate in. Jesus says in Matthew 5, lust is basically the commission of adultery in our hearts. And some of us here doubtless have unbiblical divorces, which Matthew 5 connects to adultery. Friends, there are lots of reasons for us to look at this and see that we have fallen short of God's standard. And there are three things we need to know today. First, God means what he says. In Revelation 22, Jesus says that outside New Jerusalem are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. A life of unrepentant, persistent sexual sin will lead us to hell. But second, we need to know there is grace and mercy and restoration in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, after Paul lists all those sins and says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, I failed terribly in these areas. And you likely have too. Such were each of us. But if we're in Christ, he's made us new and he's washed us and he set us apart for himself and he's declared us righteous. And Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Full pardon is available in Jesus. If you have never come to Christ, do so today. Mark 1.15, Jesus says, Repent and believe the gospel. Turn away from your old life of sin and turn to Jesus, who is God and man, who lived the sinless life we failed to live, who died for our sins and who bore all of God's fury for what we deserved. And he has risen victoriously from the dead. Friend, if you cast yourself upon his mercy you will be saved. But lastly, if you're a believer, know that victory over sin is available in Christ. When Paul talks to the, the sexual sinners in Corinth, or those who had formerly been sexual sinners, he says, such were some of you. It's past tense. They're no longer what they used to be. And likewise, we can be different. We can walk in newness of life and victory over our sin in Jesus. Romans 6 says, present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Colossians 3 says, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Friends, we can actually do that if we know Christ by the power of the Spirit. We can walk in faith and obedience. And yes, we won't do it perfectly. But we can trust ourselves to God's grace. And we can know that Jesus has set us free from the dominion of sin at the cross. We are slaves to it no longer. So we must strive to be doers of God's word in these areas. Let's wrap this up. We've seen today God has made humanity in, to exist in community. God has made humanity to be men and women. God has created marriage and sexuality. May we take our failures to Jesus and receive his grace. 
May we believe and obey what he says. May we resist the lies of the world. For God says in Isaiah 55, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts.